and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Well, Drew, it is the year 2023. We are officially uh, just weeks away from the start of AMPTA season. There is so much going on. It is always the craziest and most exciting time of year. And we are thrilled after a much-needed holiday break, we'll get into all of that stuff later, uh, to be back on the mics with you. We've got some really interesting content on today's show. We're going to do a second segment later on where we talk about all the January invitational results that have been going on. We'll catch you up on everything law school mock that Drew and I have been doing. Uh, but first, Drew, we've got some really interesting topics that we want to get into with our guests today. So I'll kick it over to you to talk about that and to introduce who we've got on the show. Yeah. So I got to say, I think that something that neither Ben nor I ever thought was going to happen or envisioned, but I can safely say is the thing I'm most proud of is when we get, um, you know, random schools out in the ether that reach out to us about some issue that comes up that they want to bring attention to. And I think that, you know, Ben and I did the episode a little while ago where we talked about the pressures of, of Zoom mock trial and the return to in-person mock trial. I, don't know the episode number off the top of my head, but you know, I'm sure Ben will remind us of it in a second. Um, but we did that one a little while ago. And just recently, um, I was reached out to by someone and I'm about to introduce them, but uh, they had a really fascinating issue that I knew nothing about. And I think we really wanted to do this episode to shine light on it. So I am so thrilled and so excited to introduce Melissa Tusimer. Um, who is the president of Cal Poly Slow's mock trial program. She's a senior, the captain of the A-team, a double All-American witness last year, absolutely fantastic competitor, and has a really, really fascinating and honestly very unfortunate issue um, going on with the Cal Poly program. So we're going to get into that in, in a bit. But Melissa, first of all, let me just say thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It is such an honor being here recording with both of you, Ben and Drew. I am so excited to kind of cover this issue that we've been pointing about and talking about uh, specifically for the California public university system and Cal Poly San Luis Obispo too, in particular. And I'm just so honored to have this space and be here with all of you. Well, Melissa, as you and hopefully everyone else that listens to the podcast knows, the very first question I'm going to ask is just your origin story. We love to get to know how people got involved in mock trial. And while I know this really isn't about you, you are the person that we're talking to. So how exactly did you get involved in mock trial? Wow. Um, great question. I originally got involved in mock trial in middle school and it was because my dad thought it would be something really fun to partake in in a summer camp. And I did it and I actually witnessed. So kind of full circle back to witnessing and I fell in love with it and I proceeded to do it in high school. I did it for all four years in high school. And it really felt like that I had an opportunity to step into a space and be able to take up room. And I think that growing up, I was really nervous to do that. I was really nervous to, as a woman and particularly like law, to step into a space and be able to take that up and speak my truth and, you know, defend a client or prosecute, you know, a client. And, and along with doing all of that came this, I can be more than what I thought I could, what I could have been. And I love it. I loved it. And I came to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo for my undergrad. I am in my senior year studying political science and I 
started at the mock trial program my freshman year and was competed all four years. And now I, I am here, finalized, it's my final season and I'm really excited. Well, I, I always love hearing how people get started. I think it's cool, especially when someone has started in the middle school world and kind of really worked your way up. And um, I will briefly tell you as someone that has now gone all the way to the law school world, um, I think you should appreciate what you have in, in college. I think that uh, while I don't think it's perfect, I do think that the college version of mock trial is has been my favorite and I think is is superior in many ways. Um, but uh, I do want to get to uh, what exactly is going on with the whole California uh, system. And and I'm just going to kind of ask you if you can explain um, to all the listeners what exactly is going on and what is the issue that you all are facing. Yeah, absolutely. I So I first reached out because this is really the first year that our program has had to deal with what is going on. And basically in 2016, California, the California legislator passed the Assembly Bill Number 1887, known as the Prohibition on State-Funded and State-Sponsored Travel to States with Discriminatory Laws. And what that really just means is that there are a number of states that California has banned, um, and states particularly that pass discriminatory laws towards LGBTQ plus communities. Um, and it went, in 2016, when they first started, there was only a few states down there, I believe like four or five. And just recently, it's advanced to 23 states. And so that's almost half of the states in, in the United States. We've got, including where nationals is taking place. So Tennessee is on there and Arizona is on there. And a lot of other states where some really awesome invitationals are happening and we've been invited to. But unfortunately, because our program, and we're not the only program, there are a lot of other public California mock trial programs that are also facing a very similar issue. But we're solely reliant on state funds. We, and I don't really know how other programs work. And this is also where I just feel like the mock trial community doesn't talk about a lot, get the behind the scenes stuff, but our program is solely reliant on state funds. And so we actually cannot travel or use our state funds to those specific states. So we've had invitationals from your very own, like Louisiana and New Orleans invitational that we've had to decline. We've had to decline invitationals to Arizona, their cactus, you know, classic showdown. And when AMTA released nationals this year in Tennessee, we were originally, you know, really concerned because that is on our ban list and we wouldn't be able to use any of our state funds for Tennessee. And so we reached out to AMTA. We told them, you know, our program is solely reliant on state funds. We cannot travel to where nationals is being held this year. And uh, AMTA responded and, you know, they were, they mentioned that they were aware of this concern for a number of years, especially because the bill was passed in 2016. So they've been aware of it for a while. And they've reached out to, I think, particularly UCLA and UCLA kind of sent them their, um, response as to how they've been able to go around this state funding issue. And uh, AMTA's understanding is that the UC or CSU systems wouldn't necessarily be prevented because they could kind of go around this state fund through other avenues, such as student fees. Um, and so I'm not sure if other programs do this, but I believe student fees means, you know, dues, right? So if you're a member of a program, you would have to give dues and that's where they would get their state funding or their uh, program funding from. Um, so they said, hey, you know, I know you brought this up, but on, on our end, our understanding is that this isn't really a problem because there's other avenues that you can go around this. 
And so that kind of left our program in a little bit of a weird place because we were being, um, and all love to UCLA's program. They're phenomenal. They're amazing. Um, but they've got a lot of resources and they are definitely not student run. They've got a lot of coaches. They've got a lot of hands on deck, um, but we are a completely student run organization. And the particular caveat between the CSU system, so the California State University system where like uh, Fresno State falls under, we fall under Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, you know, San Diego State University, and then the UC system where UCLA, UC Berkeley, you know, UC Santa Barbara. Um, the particular caveat here is because the under the CSU system, mock trial isn't a student organization. It's called, it's considered an IRA, which is an instructionally related activity. So we don't actually get our funding from our student government organization, which a lot of the UC programs would. We get our funding directly from the political science department. And because we're considered an IRA, we actually can't ask for student fees. We can't ask for dues um, because it's meant to be ex- you know, equitable for everyone to join since we're a instructionally related activity. And then on top of that, we actually don't um, cut any of our members. So in fall quarter, when we have quote unquote tryouts, it's really meant for us just to get to know our new members who are interested in joining, but we have to accept everyone that comes in. And not that that's a bad thing. I love meeting all of our new members every year. And it really creates an equitable space for students who have never done mock trial before to be able to partake in an activity like this. But then we end up having around, you know, 50 students are our, our fall quarter. And that would be around five teams for our fall quarter. So we've got five teams competing at all of those invitationals. And then that kind of filters into our fall quarter where we have a lot of students competing. And so we've got to fund all those students who are competing to different areas in California for regionals, for invitationals. That's a lot of funding. So a lot of our money goes into supporting the number of people that are in our program. Um, and so that kind of cuts our state funds pretty low. And because we can't ask for student fees, um, we can't get additional funding through that avenue. And so basically all of that is to say that we have a particular uh, roadblock when we are assigned to uh, nationals or regionals that are outside of California that are on this ban list because um, our avenues of funding are incredibly limited. And so after we reached out to AMTA about our nationals concern, a few months later when they released regional assignments, two of our teams were actually assigned to Tempe, Arizona. Uh, And Arizona is on our ban list. And this threw us for another loop. You know, we reached out to AMTA. We said, hey, we, you know, we originally reached out about nationals and our concern. We we mentioned that we are completely uh, reliant on state funds. And then you you know you went ahead and assigned us to a Tempe Arizona regional that would all, that would basically uh, not allow us to compete for two of our teams, and um, we got you know prompt response. Uh, really want to kind of give kudos to the AMTA reps that we've been in correspondence with because they've been very quick to respond. They've been very amenable and helpful to our our cause, and they're all volunteers. They're you know full time attorneys, and so they've been spending a lot of time out of their day to be able to help us. But it took about a month and a half to be able to get our two teams changed out of there into Seattle. So two of our teams are not competing at Seattle, but you know, that changes the dates of when regionals are. So now two of our teams, uh, all four of our teams are actually going to be competing on the first weekend of regionals. Um, but that really cut their preparation time in half. Um, and then in addition to all of that, you know, that we, we do have to pay for out of state travel, but uh, that's not on, on the ban list. So we can at least compete there. Um, but yeah, this is a particular issue that the California state 
university system, especially those smaller programs and a lot of those UC programs, but those smaller UC programs are having to uh, find ways to get around. And and I just think that the mock trial community hasn't really uh, mentioned any of this. I didn't even know that this was an issue until this year when I became president and, you know, California added a number of more states to the ban list and um, particularly the avenues of funding are something I've really never been able to talk to other programs about, be able to hear. I think the behind the scenes conversations within the mock trial world are less spoken about. So I know that I went wrong for a long tangent, but that's kind of the main issue and why I originally reached out. Well, Melissa, that was really, really interesting. And trust me, if we banned long tangents on this show, there wouldn't be much of a show left. So that was really detailed and helpful. So thank you for that. So this is a fascinating issue. And like Drew mentioned, it's not one that I was as familiar with, or, or I'd heard of it, but but I wasn't super familiar with the details of it until you reached it to Drew and he passed out, passed the message along to uh, to me. Um, and by the way, just as an aside, Drew mentioned an episode that we did a couple years ago uh, regarding Zoom and in-person mock trial. That was episode 53. I think it was a really interesting conversation if you want to go back and listen to that. Melissa, let me ask you this as sort of a follow-up, because this is a fascinating cross-section of issues, right? You have this law that bans using state funds for traveling to states with discriminatory laws. In many ways, I think the impetus for that law comes from a good place. You have these states who do these you know, just really gross, horrible things and discriminatory laws towards all kinds of different people. And it's like, yeah, we don't want to use our state funds for that regard. Uh, but then obviously it, it sort of has unintended consequences where teams like yours, which are wonderful and inclusive, get harmed because you can't participate in the activity in certain ways and go to like close tournaments that would presumably be more affordable than some of the other ones you have to go to. So obviously, like you've mentioned, AMTA has, has been accommodating and has worked hard to to help you all out. But where do you see this going from here? Do you think this is the type of thing where, you know, moving forward, AMTA needs to factor this into where they place people in their initial regionals? Do they need to, you know, provide uh, more support for fundraising for schools like yours that are impacted by this? You know, what do you see their role as now that we're sort of raising awareness for this problem and trying to figure out how to solve it moving forward? That is an excellent question. And that's really been a question that I've been thinking about for a while, particularly, you know, at the start of the year when Nationals was released and where that would be. And then particularly for our specific situation in which we were assigned to an Arizona regionals. And I think that's a complicated and complex issue because I think it really takes into the type of funding and the resources that programs have. And that's a lot of work to be able to, you know, understand every single mock trial program. And especially in California, there's, I mean, there's a lot of mock trial programs in California, but to specifically understand, you know, how programs are able to circumvent this kind of issue. And I think and we were talking about this a little before we started recording, but um, there are, you know, private, uh, private universities, mock trial programs that are able to compete in these states, right. That are banned. And I think, um, when we were looking at the change log, we were changed, you know, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo was changed out of Tempe, San Diego State University was changed out of Tempe, and, you know, Santa Clara University was brought into uh, Fresno and, um, or sorry, uh, was taken out and then Pepperdine was switched into uh, Tempe. And so I think really 
that this whole, the public university and private university, I don't think that's particularly what needs to be taken into account. It's more of the type of resources that our programs are allowed to utilize when it comes to competing and, and being able to fund those competitions. I think if AMTA wants to make an effort, I think having like maybe an open floor kind of conversation where California schools could come in and kind of let them know, hey, this is our situation. We are really not able to compete at these in these certain states. And I think that also creates an area where there are some public California university schools that are able to compete because they have different avenues of funding. Maybe the way that their program is set up or the way that their institution sets up their own program allows for that kind of uh, outsourcing of different funds. So for example, I know that um, I believe UC Irvine does dues and I know that UCLA does dues and through those dues, like you are able to have funding in, in order to compete at at the states that you wouldn't be able to if you were only reliant on state funds. And so being able to, I don't know, connect to the California schools, to those programs, kind of having an open forum of like, hey, let us know what your situation is and we'll take that into account in regionals. Because I think that would be so much more equitable than kind of assigning schools to wherever they are based on TPR, based on other factors. And then at the end of the day, having to accommodate like 13 or, you know, 14 requests coming in from all these schools saying we can't compete because of the way that our program is set up. And so I think, I think the way moving forward is just to create that open space and and have, you know, programs let AMTA know what they can and can't do. And then AMTA taking that into account as they do regional assignments, or even when they, you know, decide where nationals could be. I know that it's tough for especially California and honestly all of the West Coast schools because we only have one orcs on the West Coast. And so when we do get to nationals, there's not as many West Coast schools that get to nationals as there would be across the rest of the you know, nation. But um, I think it's a particular uh, thing to take into account is what what programs could even compete at nationals, you know, but I think regionals is a larger is a larger conversation compared to nationals. But that's something to take into account as well. So, Melissa, again, I, you know, I want to echo what Ben said of just I was blown away by how detailed and, and specific you were able to be with that description. Uh, honestly, it is very impressive to me. Um, and I found it very interesting to listen to. Um, I wanted to add to this that there's an interesting aspect of this, at least in my opinion, that as a, uh, you know, person that identifies as a fairly liberal person. I feel like the idea behind this law is a generally good one. Like I, I think that we should in general try to say like, Hey, we don't want to support funding to places that are discriminated against the LGBTQ plus communities. And from the perspective of, I could see a motivation for a lot of, um, uh, lawmakers that say, well, I want to protect those LGBTQ plus members of the community that would feel uncomfortable going to a state that is on this list and, and to encourage the UC programs, um, the UC schools to only go and use state resources to go to, uh, states that aren't discriminatory in that way. Like when I, when I think about that, when I look at the letter of the law, I'm like, wow, that's, that's a, a good idea. And, even from the perspective of just bringing awareness to the, hey, this is a state that is discriminating. Um, I think that that's great. And I think we should be calling those states out. And hell, I'm not super proud of the fact that I'm from Atlanta and, and Georgia's on that list or the fact that I'm living in New Orleans and Louisiana is on that list. Um, you know, it, it frustrates me. And, and 
knowing more about this issue makes me more inclined and, and want to lobby uh, harder to lawmakers to change those relevant laws. That being said, what you have expressed and what I think I'm most concerned about is that the execution of this doesn't really feel like it is satisfying the goals that the law seeks to make. And obviously we don't have any you know, lawmakers on here to discuss you know, the motivations of it, but just kind of talking about it briefly for a second, in my head, you know, the flaw with this is that in terms of an awareness perspective, this isn't going to prevent, um, this isn't going to draw attention the way that if, if California said, you know what, you're not allowed to compete or, or attend other states that are, you know, states that are on this list and, um, you're not allowed to, to go there. And all of a sudden UCLA can't travel for basketball games, for football games. Um, you know, I think, I think that happens and holy cow, it has huge implications and people are going to be talking about it. It's going to matter, but this isn't affecting those big sports programs. It's honestly not even affecting, um, you know, as you've explained, some of these bigger programs that have access to other non-state issued funds. It seems like it's really affecting the smaller schools uh, or maybe not smaller schools, but the less funded schools and the schools that don't have access to those resources. And um, it's really just effectively cutting off a lot of opportunities for you guys. And I find that to be very frustrating and definitely not the intention of this. So uh, I, I don't know that this is even a question, but more just in the spirit of, of sparking discussion, I do find it to be a very interesting issue where it doesn't feel super black and white of this is just a horrible thing that they've passed um, and totally unfair, but rather, at least in my mind, a well-intentioned law that has had poor execution um, would be my takeaway. Yes, I absolutely agree. And even so at the very beginning of the year before, you know, the academic year, what the West Coast does is we actually have a West Coast conference. Um, so all of the advisors slash coaches slash presidents of the programs or tournament directors of programs, we actually all get on a Zoom call together. And that happened this year, this at the beginning of this year. And this particular issue was brought up on that West Coast conference. And there was a joke that was made of like, well, maybe we should all do a hundred meter dash before we start <laughs> a trial um, so that we could all be able to compete, you know, at these states <laughs> because it's, it's not affecting, you know, these sports programs. It's right. not affecting um, these larger programs that compete on like that national scale constantly and have a big you know fan following as a lot of these sports programs do. And, and then, yeah, to, uh, to add on to the second Part of that is that a lot of these larger programs um, do have avenues of, of, of funding and, and sourcing that are not directly from the state. And so that's when you really get this kind of imbalance of smaller programs that are all student mm -hmm. run. So students, you know, have to figure out how to go about this. Right. And then on, on top of that, they're particularly the way that their program is set up at their university is is in a way where that might not even be allowed to ask for dues or ask for these other sources of outside funding. And and we do, you know, um, get donations sometimes and particularly last year when we, when we qualified for nationals, we did have to go around the GoFundMe 
um, because of the source of funding, you know, that we were allocated from the political science department was, you know, running out. And so, and that's, that's really not just a Cal Poly San Luis Obispo narrative. That's, uh, I spoke with Amruta, who's the president of UC Santa Barbara. And I want to shout out Santa Barbara's program because they are amazing. They're also student run. They, they are just fighting through all their roadblocks as well. But we chatted and I was like, Hey, are you facing similar <laughs> problems uh, with your program as well? Like, is this something that you've had to tackle? And she was like, absolutely. You know, when nationals was released and they were going to be in Tennessee, that was a big concern for them as well. And I was talking to them and they were like, you know, if we qualify for nationals, we, it, that's going to be a really difficult trip to fund and, and be able to compete in. And the way that they were saying, you know, we so we get all of our funding at the beginning of the year, although it's not a lot because it's you know directly from the department. It's not a lot, but we get all of that funding at the beginning of the year. Uh, Aruna was saying, you know, at, at UC Santa Barbara, they get their funds quarterly, and they have to apply every quarter to get their funds. And there actually might be situations in which that quarter UC Santa Barbara doesn't give them their funds, and so in that case, like that program might have to struggle for that quarter in order to be able to. Um, fund all that travel, all that competition, all the stuff that they would need for, you know, doc boxes and, and competitions. And so it, this is, you know, and our programs are pretty small compared to other programs. And we've, we've knock on wood, been able to get really far in our, in these competitions and been able to make a name for ourselves at these competitions. But behind the scenes, you know, students are really doing a lot. We're like, and this is the case across the board where we've been, we, a lot of our students in my program, me particularly, and I know at, you know, UC Santa Barbara, we've had to upfront a lot of our own personal money um, to be able to fund travel and competitions. And I think that's asking for too much from students who are, you know, college students who have their own academics and loans to think about on top of uh, their mock trial program that they love. And, and I know I, 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 I love my program so much. I would do anything for my program and the people in my program. Um, but I think that this law passed by California, although it has really good intentions and I absolutely support that. I, I think that it's a very important message as Drew, you mentioned. Um, but it's having these really hard consequences on students that are running these programs to be able to find ways to allow their program to compete and excel and have people, you know, get the experience that they want out of mock trial. Yeah, I really, as we kind of kind of move to wrap up this discussion, I really want to piggyback off of something you just said there, Melissa, because, you know, <laughs> I, I had a conversation with a UMBC person recently about dealing with some funding. And I'm like, sometimes I think our school forgets that our kids need to eat, you know, like they're like, oh, we'll pay for your hotels and we'll pay for your van or whatever. And I'm like, people need food, people need sustenance, people need these things. And yeah, okay, you fundraise and you get there, but then schools expect for, you know, you to just kind of be able to deal with it all on your own and figure it out or the coach will pay for it or, or, or you know, student run programs will, you know, find a way to do it. And it's a really lousy way of doing things. So I think my, my last question for you, and this is, look, this, we could do a series of episodes on, you know, funding inequities and the haves and the have nots of AMTA. But is there a broader conversation here about our activity as a whole and how we promote equity in the sense that like, look, in competitive activities, obviously, you know, money is to some degree always going to buy access to certain resources. But is there a broader conversation about the way that we can structure this organization and the way that we can structure 
maybe our cases and the way that AMTA supports programs that could even the playing field a little bit for programs like yours or programs like Santa Barbara's or other programs that we've talked about there who, you know, maybe don't have the resources of some of these larger programs. And again, not saying bad things like you mentioned earlier about UCLA, wonderful people, great program, but, uh, you know, a way that AMTA could facilitate a conversation like that to help promote programs like yours and similar ones who have some of the challenges that you've described. Yes, I absolutely think that there is an equitable conversation here um, or conversation around equity. And I think that particularly from AMTA's end, I mean, they know when new programs are coming in, right? And I'm sure that there are new programs that come in and are not quite sure how to go about things. And I'm, and I'm sure that they know about really small programs who are struggling for this, you know, equitable playing field within mock trial. And I think that that is a conversation that I I think that the mock trial community doesn't have often. I, you know, I, a big takeaway from all of this at one point in (laughs) when I was speaking with my board and we were trying to figure out, you know, how to go about regionals. This was before we got reassigned to Seattle. But at one point I was like, are we the only, are we the only school that has to deal with this? And I, for a while was like, I, I really don't know what's going on at other universities. I don't know how other universities are tackling issues like this. I don't know how other universities are tackling funding, you know, and I think that's, that's a conversation that isn't had enough within our mock trial community. And I think that there are, there's a lot to learn from each other. There's a lot. I'm, I'm sure that programs have trick up, tricks up their sleeves on how they get around funding and all of that. And just being able to share that knowledge with one another, I think is incredibly important. I think AMTA, uh, and I know I mentioned this earlier about connecting with those, you know, public California mock trial programs, but also just creating some kind of open forum, open space for mock trial programs to be able to share what their experiences have been, how they've been able to circumvent issues like this. And for AMTA to be kind of leading that conversation around equity, because I know that they, they really do take this into account at, at on some level, I mean, even our first correspondence with them when we when we mentioned our concern over nationals, they were like, "Oh, well, we're we're well aware of this issue, and we've we've talked to schools about it too." And so, um, AMTA is aware of these things, and and they they've been having conversations with other programs. And so, in order to create that kind of equitable playing field, maybe allowing other programs to to be able to hear it, hear in on these conversations and be able to hear in on what's going on. And, and for AMTA to promote these kind of equitable avenues of maybe donations, of, of funding, of, of how programs can go about that and structure a, a level playing field for all the programs, whether it be small student run or a large, you know, national, nationally recognized teams that have resources like that. Yeah. I think there's a lot of really interesting conversations to be had. I think this is just scratching the surface on that. There's just so many things that we could get into and maybe on a future episode, you know, we absolutely will. Uh, but for now, Melissa, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for taking the time to prepare the information that you, you know, shared with our listeners today and also just for your leadership on this issue. I'm sure it's been challenging at times dealing with this and leading, you know, such a wonderfully successful program, such a great success story at Cal Poly. Uh, but we're really grateful to you for all the work that you've done and for taking some time to chat with us. So thank you for coming on the show. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving space um, to have this conversation. I also wanted to kind of like a public message of if anyone is listening to this episode and kind of is resonating with things that we've talked about, things that I've mentioned, like I'm always a message away. Please feel free to contact me. Let's touch base. If any other programs want to talk about stuff like this, I would love to do that. Um, I'm always open to conversations. And so Ben and Drew, I really want to thank you for for giving time to cover this issue and, and kind of giving some public attention to it, which I think is much needed. Seriously, thank you, Melissa. Yeah, it was our pleasure to have you on. We're really grateful to you for taking some time and for being the one to reach out because these are the types of things that we learn about uh, by people talking to each other. So hopefully we can continue to facilitate, you know, even more of those discussions. Uh, for those of you all who are listening, we're going to take a quick break. We've got some uh, January invitational results to break down. We want to get into that. So we're going to talk about that in just a moment and we will be right Welcome back to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. All right, folks, I am really excited. Uh, It is obviously towards the end of January, which means we have all of the January, or at least most of the major January invites in. This is kind of the last glimpse we're getting before regionals. Um, We're going to break down a few of the major ones in a second. Um, But before we do, wanted to give a few quick updates um, from both Ben and I on what's going on in our worlds. Uh, Ben, I'll I'll throw it to you first. I know you've had a busy couple of weeks. So what's been going on? Well, let's see. It's we're recording this on Tuesday, the 24th. And my last couple of days were uh, BWI to Syracuse to Newark to O'Hare to Midway back to BWI. Um, the life of a, a mock trial coach with two programs in two different places. Uh, so yeah, so this past weekend we were supposed to be at U Classic. Unfortunately, COVID, um, did what it does. And, um, I won't use the words that I was about to use, but, but acted, it was a pain. I'll put it that way. And so a couple of my A team kids, unfortunately, were dealing with COVID. So we weren't able to travel to California, which is a super bummer, both because we really wanted to compete in that amazing field. And, you know, we, we want to go to LA in January. That was part of it too. <laughs> Didn't get to do that, which was a bummer. But this past weekend, I was coaching, uh, my law school team in something called the National Trial League. I won't go on too much of a tangent here, but just to explain it real fast, super interesting, unique, uh, law school mock trial competition. The, uh, fall semester, you could have up to six people on the team. We had five and it was a different packet every two weeks on Zoom. Jeez. Um, and it was 12 teams split into two divisions of six. And so you played seven trials over six weeks, uh, over six Tuesdays, uh, over the course of the semester, prepping a different packet every two weeks. Uh, and we kind of rotated people in and out. Uh, my Maryland team went seven and zero uh, with a couple of, uh, former AMTA competitors on that team, uh, and advanced to the top four, which was in Syracuse this past weekend. Uh, we advanced to the national final round before losing to St. Mary's which is actually run by my former law school coach, AJ Belita DeLuna. So I was busy with all of that. I was originally supposed to fly over to Chicago early Sunday morning and meet up with my A-team at Great Chicago Fire. Because we made the final, I had to switch my flight. I ended up walking into the Palmer House where GCF was hosted. Uh, right about as closing ceremonies were starting to <laughs> begin. So I didn't make it for pretty much any of the tournament. But from the film I've been able to watch and the people I chatted with, uh, sounds like GCF. Uh, which we'll get into the, the results a little bit later, but sounds like GCF was a raging success, uh, like it almost always is. So 
been around running around like crazy. Drew, I know you're prepping for NTC for Tyla. We've got two teams to, uh, going there. And so I'm diving right back into that now that I'm done with National Trial League. Uh, obviously we're getting ready for regionals. UMBC has two teams going to Georgetown's Hilltop Invitational this coming weekend. Uh, so it's just a boring, lazy, uneventful time of year with not much going on. Uh, Drew, how about things on your end? I'm sure you've been, uh, you know, catching up on TV shows and just kind of taking it easy and all that good stuff. Basically just kicking back. Um, lots of Netflix. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, watch Kaleidoscope for sure. Um, (laughs) but, uh, no, I, I mean, I think that as you were alluding to, this is kind of the time of the year when everyone kicks into crazy high gear. Uh, my Tyla prep has become NTC, whatever you want to call it, has definitely stepped up a lot. Um, we had our first scrimmage the other day. And that has been taking up uh, pretty much all of my mental headspace and just trying to get as ready for it as possible. Um, I definitely do not want to hear anything more about cows and those that, that know, know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, oh, it's just a horrible, horrible case. And I'm so ready to be done with it. But anyway, that's for another topic at another time. I will admit that I have probably stepped back from my coaching responsibilities at Tulane um, a little bit more than I wished I had to, but um, just the fact that my uh, NTC competition date is the same as all of the Tulane undergrad teams regionals means that I won't be able to be there with them. And um, a lot of the grind time is kind of the same for both of us. And uh, un- unfortunately, I haven't been able to be with them as much as I wished, but I do know that they're working hard and I expect great things from them uh, without me. They, they honestly have better coaches, so they're going to be fine. Um, one thing I did really want to quickly address, though, about undergraduate mock trial is the battle in the bayou. Um, I mentioned it a few times on the podcast, um, but we did end up having to cancel it. And I wanted to address it because... I think that oftentimes when tournaments get canceled, you know, people speculate, why did it get, what happened? What happened? Um, and I just wanted to explain. Um, so essentially the, there were a lot of reasons why we didn't get a ton of teams to be able to come. Um, we kind of discovered late in the process that it was the same weekend as a few other tournaments that were, um, pretty close in the area. We also started recruiting for it extremely late in the process, just kind of, we didn't, know we were going to or anything until October. So there was kind of a delay for a lot of reasons. And um, we we struggled, honestly, to get a lot of teams that we wanted to have come. And our field going into uh, the weekend before the tournament was going to be around 10 or so teams. Um, Over the course of the three days over the weekend and beginning of the week before hosting, we had nearly half that field drop out. Um, and at that point, we made the decision that it didn't make sense to still host it, and we decided to cancel. I was really upset because I was really excited about running the tournament. I think it would have been very successful from the extent that we were very confident about having two judges. Um, we were we were very close and, and were optimistic that we were going to be able to have three scoring judges around. Um, and I, I truly think that we are capable of and will will attempt to do that next year um but there were a lot of fun things that we were going to do and and i'm sad that we weren't able to but i will tell everyone that uh, we have every intention of hosting a next year and if you're looking for a tournament um in most likely that time frame um i don't know yet officially and i will announce it once i do but our plan is probably to do a similar time frame 
um, and to just uh, know a little bit earlier on to hopefully give teams notice of it. But um, a lot of the plans as far as hosting a meal for everyone um, and, and like I said, getting getting two to three judges in each round um, is, is still the plan. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully hosting it next year. But enough about us. Let's talk about these invitational results. Um, I, I know that this has been a long episode, and I think there are probably a lot of people that, that tuned in to listen to us talk about invitationals. They've had to listen for probably 40 minutes now, and they're like, all right, let's hear some invites. So um, without further ado, well, I'm going to go ahead and take us to our first invite, um, which is, of course, the beach party, um, which happened. Uh, it's kind of the, the very first January tournament. And I'll quickly address that Beach Party, um, which is hosted by UC Irvine, is a, a program-style bracket tournament. And for those that don't know what that means, essentially, rather than um, sending an individual team, your program goes and you have to bring two teams and your your program effectively competes together. And you typically will be competing against another whole program where your A will go against their A, your B will go against their B, or bite, or you'll flip it. Um, but it kind of allows that where uh, you don't have a you know UCLA A and UCLA B, you have just UCLA as a program. Um, so th- that's the style of this tournament. It also is where you kind of eliminate people and you have a the winners continue moving on and facing each other. Everyone else just kind of faces, I assume it's kind of semi-random pairings. Um, or probably some sort of high, high pairings, but um, it does kind of allow for this champion to emerge. Uh, and that champion was UCLA. Um, the the kind of runner-up from the other side of the bracket was UC Irvine, um, but UCLA ended up with 11 wins. Irvine had nine and a half wins. And then in order of wins, you had Stanford with 11 wins, Northwestern with 10 wins, and UCSB with nine wins. Um, so... That's kind of the gist of Beach Party. Obviously, neither Ben nor I were there, but um, if I had to guess blindly at which programs were going to be really successful at this, I, I feel confident I could have gotten three or four of the five. Um, but Ben, I don't know. What, what are you thinking about this tournament? Yeah, Beach Party results are always really interesting because like you mentioned, it it tests the strength of your overall program and of the two teams that you bring and it was a fascinating field right like you had some midwest teams you had both northwest northwestern and illinois there um you know you had you had juniata and texas uh ut were there as well so it's like just a really interesting sort of uh cornucopia of teams from all over the country uh but yeah i mean ucla Irvine, such a good team. Uh, Stanford taking, you know, I'll, I'll say quote unquote off third, even though they had more wins than Irvine, but Irvine came out of their division. UCLA, I think, must have knocked out Stanford during like the initial round robin phase. Um, so yeah, I think it's kind of similar analysis to what we've talked about with UCLA in the past. They're so incredible every year, but it's been several years. And I think we're creeping up on a decade, right? Since UCLA has been in a final round they've been so close several times mm-hmm. but i think it's been you know close to a decade since they've actually been in a final round and you just have to think one of these years that they're going to break back through there maybe this is the year with everybody getting back used to in-person maskless mock trial a program with resources like ucla might be the ones who are able to do it um very impressive showing by irvine as well who's just you know such a legacy strong program and has had a very good year so yeah i mean i think 
the West Coast continuing to show out. Stanford, obviously, always a threat. Um, Berkeley had, you know, compared to some of those other teams, a little bit of a down weekend. But uh, we're, you're going to hear their name at the top of the list for a very, very important tournament in just a couple sets of results as well. So I think, as usual, the West Coast Orcs setting up to be a place that I never, ever, ever want to be. <laughs> you can certainly say that again. Well, <laughs> in the spirit of, of moving along, Ben, why don't you take us to our next invite? U Classic, uh, our top five in order. We had a CS tie for first place with seven wins. Uh, winner was the University of Chicago, seven wins and a 20 CS. Then Berkeley B, seven wins and a 17 CS, followed by Berkeley A, and then Rhodes and Arizona. Uh, very interesting results here. Uh, you have Chicago, such obviously, you know, national runner up, one of the strongest programs in the country. Doing well at U Classic, showing that they're really coming on strong and, and doing such a great job. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, a lot of really, really great teams doing well here. Berkeley tanking second and third. And given how they did at GCF, which we'll get to in a moment, really impressive. We saw Rhodes at GCF. They were fantastic. So to see them up here, uh, doing well at U Classic, not, sur- not surprising at all. Uh, Arizona being up there, certainly interesting to me, a program that, you know, has had some legacy success and tends to be like solid to good. Uh, definitely, you know, interesting to see them do well at U Classic. But if I were to pick a highlight here, I think I'd have to stick with Chicago. You know, you always look at the schools who were in the national final round the previous year um, and wonder, okay, what are they going to do the next year? Chicago and Harvard, obviously the two teams on that list. And Chicago is another one, maybe not quite as much as UCLA, but you know, they're so close. Obviously, last year they were incredibly close. And you wonder is, you know, could this be the year that they break through and win one? So uh that's mostly what I've noticed here. Drew, anything else on U Classic stand out to you? No, I think you mostly covered it. I, I think you're right to point out UC Berkeley. Um, they're definitely a team that I just kept seeing on a lot of these lists, and I was like, wow, they have had quite an impressive uh, January, and I think that in so many ways, January is the best indicator, in my opinion, of regional and orcs result. Um, just it's obviously the closest. It's when teams are the most polished. The you know, the, I, I think it's safe to say that uh, this is the best, better indicator than say an October or a November tournament. Yeah. Um, and seeing a you know A and B team do as well as they did is definitely very impressive. Um. I think you're right to point out the other teams that you did. I will say that it is kind of uh, interesting to me and kind of cool in some ways that I I don't know this for certain, but I feel like most of the time West Coast tournaments will still have, you know, the occasional East Coast team in there. Um, and, and Ben, it's so funny with UMBC uh, not being able to go here, that was the lone East Coast team. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. that would have been there. And so, you know, you really failed us there. Uh, in, in, <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. No, I know. But um, yeah, I mean, it was just kind of, I mean, you've got Chicago, Northwestern Roads, but there's no one further east or Vanderbilt too, um, but no one further east than that. And so it does become this kind of West Coast versus and Midwest tournament, which of course, you know, probably could need, use more of them. There are enough Northeast tournaments already, but it just kind of is worth noting and kind of interesting. Um, you know, I will say that that round three between Berkeley B, um, and Chicago, you know, the only loss that those two teams had, you know, I wish it could have been a fly on the wall on that one. And again, you know, the fact that it was Berkeley's B team really does say a lot and is, is very impressive to me. 
Uh, we're obviously not sure whether that was the Chicago A, B, or, or what have you team. Um, but, you know, whatever team it was was obviously very good. And that Berkeley B team to hang with them is obviously very, very good. So lots of good things from lots of good programs. But, um, yeah, I, I wish I had more to say about the West Coast. But I think we just keep seeing the same teams and they keep being really good. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And, and, you know, we've talked about some, some other, obviously, like, you know, we talked about Cal Poly Slow earlier in this mm-hmm. episode. We mentioned UCSB, uh, doing well at Beach Party, Stanford, Irvine. So it's like so many of these schools, like, yeah, UCLA and Stanford take up a lot of the, the bandwidth. But, you know, one of these years, I would not be shocked at all to see another California school really make a, a major run. You, you see it every so often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely, uh, agree with that. And look, I, I, you know, you were obviously joking, but I'm super bummed that we weren't a part of this field. This is such a great field. And I really, really wish we would have had the opportunity to play some of these teams. You know, COVID had other ideas. That's the nature <laughs> of the beast, but just a really impressive field. Um, I guess I'll, I'll finish with this before we head down south. Um, definitely have my eye on Rhodes, you know, like Rhodes is just so good every year. And I feel like they, they, you know, they're coming home to Memphis and like, what a story that would be mm-hmm. if Rhodes in their hometown. I mean, first of all, you got to think when they get there, like nobody knows Rhodes judging better than Rhodes. Mm-hmm. And so you got to think when they get there, uh, you don't want to have to play Rhodes in Memphis with a whole bunch of judges who are probably accustomed to seeing Rhodes style mock trial. Um, so they're certainly a team that, that I think is worth, uh, keeping our eye on. Uh, but Drew, that's all I can really think of here. So if you want to take yeah. us to Ramblin' Wreck. Well, I will, I, you know, I will just briefly say, I'm glad you mentioned Rhodes. Their only two losses were both by one point. Hmm. Um, that's, I mean, they lost by one point on both ballots against Washington in their first round, and then they swept the rest. And the rest were by almost all double digits. So you know that they, they, sour after those two and they're like we're not losing anymore after this <laughs> um but i couldn't agree more not a team i'd want to face in their backyard um gonna definitely be a force uh, should they make it to nationals and I, I i think it's safe to say they probably will um okay but moving right along um as you alluded to we're going to go down south to the ramblin wreck hosted by georgia tech um at ramblin wreck um and this was the january 21st 22nd weekend which is the same as great chicago fire so just kind of the asterisks on, you know, there may be some programs that this might have been their B team, but I, I think this is uh, definitely still obviously a very impressive field. Um, but just because there are some that we might repeat. Um, starting in first, we had Brown with seven wins and a 17 CS, then UCLA with seven wins and a 12 CS, followed by UT Texas with six and a half wins and a 14 and a half CS, then Stanford with six wins and a 13 and a half CS, and then Florida with five and a half wins and a 19 and a half CS. Um, you know, gotta say Brown, I really think them coming out on top here with seven wins. Um, you know, Brown is one of those programs where they kind of are consistently very solid performers. They almost always make it to orcs as far as I can remember. They are often either at nationals or right on the fringe for having made it to nationals. Um, but I feel like we've seen them have a few strong results in the in the fall, and they're showing up again here in, in January. So definitely primed, um, at least to me, to be a team that, that you know is threatening to make it to nationals this year. Uh, their only loss was in a round against uh, UF against Florida, um, in a close round where they just 
uh, you know, snuck a ballot by one and lost by six. I mean, very, very close. But um, I don't know. Brown definitely is the, the one that sticks out to me. UCLA, we just talked enough about them, so I won't do it with them anymore. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, UT, Florida, Stanford, good teams doing good things. I, I wish I had more to say about them. Yeah, I think that you mostly covered it. Brown being here is super interesting. They're a fascinating team. Um, and obviously the dynamics of them, you know, coming down south and coming down to, to Georgia Tech and, and doing well there. It's always interesting to me when you see, you know, what I would truly classify as a northern team coming down to a true southern invitational and, and taking down, you know, a lot of really good southern teams. Obviously UCLA coming across the country and having success and, and, tying with Brown for for first and then just losing on on CS just really impressive and really noteworthy. I I think here you know like you said like you know with with B teams it's like you know who knows uh you know some of these teams I see also had teams at GCF so like maybe some of these were B teams but I think a lot of them weren't. Mm-hmm. And I think like it is very impressive to see uh teams having the success at a tournament like this one. Um, you know, you look at some of the teams on this list. I mean, this was, you know, Georgia, I know had a team at, at a GCF, uh, Patrick Henry did as well, but like, uh, Miami, uh, Stanford, Harvard, uh, UVA, like this was just, this was a loaded field. Um, and candidly, even having success against those programs, B teams is still really impressive because so many of those programs, uh, have incredible, uh, B teams. So yeah, I think you pretty much covered it, Drew. Um, and if you don't have anything else here, I can take us to our last one, which is GCF. Yep, I, I think that we've kind of covered it all. Um, definitely an impressive showing from the teams uh, that were here and excited to see what they're able to do moving forward. But I, I think it's fair to say that what everyone's here for, the big one uh, that we've all been waiting for is, of course, the Great Chicago Fire hosted by the uh, University of Chicago. Um, again, same weekend as Ramblin' Rec, January 21st, 22nd. And in order, we had, we said them earlier, but UC Berkeley coming in with nine wins and a 26 and a half CS. Then Emory with eight wins and a 27 CS. Then UVA with eight wins and a 26 and a half CS. Then University of Wisconsin-Madison with eight wins and a 26 CS. And then Wash U St. Louis with eight wins and a 21 CS. Um, I'm just going to start out with the one that to me, I, you probably heard it in my voice, but Wisconsin. I mean, we, we knew that they were good. They made it to nationals last year. They did well at nationals last year. Kate Hanner Slattery knows what she's doing as a coach. They've gotten a lot of awards already this season, but getting fourth at GCF is putting them on the radar as a legitimate, not just placing in the top 10, but a, a legitimate contender for that final round. Um, that is a extraordinarily good showing out of them. And I'm so happy for them. That is so, so cool. Um, you know, we talked about Berkeley, obviously. UVA already won Gamte. They're, you know, clearly getting back on track. They're very good. Wash U St. Louis, I feel like we talk about all the time. Um, as being a, a really big threat and really a growing threat um, with a lot of young, really good talent. And then Emory. I, I think that what's cool about Emory is that um, obviously with Rhea Lakaraju graduating last year and being such a prominent and prolific award winner, for them to come and get second at GCF 
really shows the, the strength and depth of their program, that it was not just this one competitor, um, you know, carrying the load. Not that anyone ever thought she was, um, but I just think really proving the medal of, of a strong student run program like Emory um, and a really noteworthy result for them to, to be getting second in this field. And with, again, with a really high CS, definitely very, very impressive. Um, and the last thing that I'll mention before I throw it to you, Ben, is Harvard. Um, obviously, everyone, you know, I think most people's odds on um, candidate to, to make it back. And I, I do believe this is, you know, they're fully stacked a team with people that were not competing in the fall are now back. Um, and, you know, they obviously did very, very well. They weren't in the top five. They were in seventh. They actually faced Berkeley in that final round, round four. It was the high, high pairing at the time. Um, and Berkeley got the better of Harvard in a plus six, plus 10, minus five um, in favor of Berkeley. But Harvard had a very impressive showing themselves. They actually had a CS of 30, which is the highest of any that I saw. Um, and they just had a, a brutal schedule where they they did pretty well, all things considered, with what they had. Um, just, again, that last round with Berkeley being the one that, uh, that they couldn't get the better of. But... Um, other than that, um, Ben, I- I'll toss it to you. Obviously, there's a lot going on here. I know UMBC was there, but unfortunately, you weren't there to watch it. But I'm sure you heard some things. So what did you hear and, and what are you seeing on this tab result? Yeah, so you went through a lot of what I noticed as well. UMBC was there. And so while I didn't get to watch our rounds live, I've started to catch up on a lot of our film. And we we played Berkeley round one and they swept us. And, and I've caught up on some of that round and they're really, really great, super clean, super dynamic, just super polished, really, really excellent uh, team. We had the opportunity to face off with Rhodes and Duke, two programs that we really like and really enjoy playing. Uh, and, and they had a really uh, great weekend, both teams. And I was really impressed with both of them. I think, look, GCF. You know, I'll do a little bit of a hot take here that I think GCF is the best tournament in the country. Um, I know that we describe Gamtee that way. Gamtee is in November. A lot of teams send their unstacked teams. Uh, it's in a little bit of a weird time of year. Nobody's unstacked at GCF. Like GCF is let's load our team up. Let's like go through, you know, there is no easy path at GCF, even if you know, you're, you're near the bottom of the bracket. So to see a team like Berkeley win GCF, to see some of these other schools, you know, like you mentioned, Wisconsin, uh, Wash U St. Louis is another one that I remember we mentioned in one of our fall have my eye on this team previews. Uh, definitely a team that's very impressive. For me, I think if you were to take this list, right, this, I'm looking at the tab summary and the seventh, seven placement teams plus the three honorable mentions, I would wager pretty significantly that one, if not both, of the national final round competitors teams will come from this list. And you think Berkeley, Emory, UVA, Wisconsin, Wash U, Patrick Henry, Harvard, Tufts, UCLA, UC Irvine, right? Maybe the only one missing from that list is like uh, Yale um, or Georgia, who's having a very good year or, or, or things like that. But if if you gave me like odds for one of if not both of the national final round teams being from that list you know i think they would be you know pretty close odds because those are just teams number one that are consistently great and number two that this year have had such strong results uh throughout the season so just a really really uh fantastic field Uh, and i think the last thing that i'll mention is 
from everything that I heard and the little that I got to experience, GCF was just run immaculately, right? The Palmer House was such a cool venue. Uh, they had three judges per round, which so few tournaments are able to provide this year. And this was not a small field. Chicago is not an easy place to recruit judges. Uh, and they were able to provide three high quality judges per round. Uh, my team had a lot of good things to say about the judging quality at GCF. So overall, fascinating results. Certainly think Berkeley is the takeaway here, uh, having such a uh, dominant weekend. But I have my eyes on a lot of these teams. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and try to project the final round because I'll just end up looking <laughs> dumb. But I don't know. I, I just I think this is where you start to think these are the teams that get it and that really are crushing it this year. And I have my eye on several of the teams on this list. Uh, I think that's all I can really think of from GCF, Drew. Anything else to add here? I think that we've definitely covered the tournament itself. Just to quickly address the the claim that you have made of those 10 teams, I first of all think that it's a very fair bet. Um, and I think that it, I, I would give you even odds. I think that there are enough teams not on that list that I do find very scary. Um, you know, you mentioned Yale, but I mean, Chicago was the runner up last year and they look really good this year. I mean, I know that they, they didn't, they weren't in that top 10, but they're running a tournament. There's a lot of things going on. I, I fear Chicago a lot too. Um, I mean, we talked about Rhodes earlier being in their backyard. I feel like they're, they've got to be a threat. Um, you know, there are definitely a lot of, of other great teams out there, but, I gotta say, I, I, I do struggle finding two that aren't on this list that I, I feel good about um, making that final round. It is a very, very impressive group. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned it. I think we've covered it for the most part. But yeah, GCF, just what a wonderful tournament. Um, loving the people that run it. It's just always a good time. And shout out to everyone that did well there and everyone just for being there. I think that's one of those tournaments where um, you, you kind of feel like just getting to go is kind of a privilege in and of itself and, and a testament to the uh, quality of your program. Um, so definitely congrats to everyone and looking forward to seeing this all pan out. I feel like the next time we're talking, it's going to be regional time. Yeah. It's, it's hard to believe uh, that we're almost to that point in the year. Um, I'll, I'll nerd out a little bit here as we wrap up that the other thing about GCF too, and, and I imagine this is attributable to friend of the pod, uh, Sam Jahangir, is nobody has a nicer looking tab summary than GCF. Their tab summary, I'm just looking at it right now, it's just immaculate. So t- take that for whatever it's worth, which is is very little. Um, Drew, as we wrap up, I'll mention uh, this just briefly because I know this caught a few people's attention. Uh, we're definitely not going to get into this in this episode, but Justin and Phil announced a really interesting twist to TBC recently with the play-in mm-hmm. tournament that they're going to be doing for two of those spots. We definitely are going to have more conversation about that on a future episode. If you haven't heard about that, I think you go to the Trial by Combat YouTube page and watch them like vamp for 10 minutes and then finally get to the announcement. Uh, but they talk about it in a little bit more detail. So go watch that and we'll get into details on that and what we think and, and how it could play out in a future episode. Uh, Drew, any other thoughts on anything that's been going on before we finish up this episode? Nope. I'll just kind of give the, the same platitude I give every year of good luck to everyone at regionals. Um, remember that, uh, you know, I know that there's so many programs out there that are expecting uh, to make it to nationals or whatever, but Honestly, making it out of regionals is a huge, huge achievement. We're obviously so excited to start breaking them down. We'll do week one. We'll do week two the same way we always do. 
Um, and, and I just, I, I wanted to remind everyone of, of the importance of just making it out of regionals and how exciting that should be. And good luck to everyone there. Try not to, to let the stress overcome the fact that this is supposed to be an enjoyable activity. Um, I know that that gets forgotten at times, but good luck and hope to see you out there on the circuit at some point. Um, but until then, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and I think the next time that will likely be in your feed will be our week one regionals breakdown because that'll be two weeks from from this episode. So we'll be doing our regionals breakdown episodes. Drew, I know the next time we record, we'll be done with uh, NTC uh, Tyla, and I'm sure we'll have some things to say about that experience. I cannot, I cannot relate to that. I am the second week of February, and I will be stressed. So I refuse to accept the premise of your question. <laughs> well, that is a, a fair, fair correction for you to make. <laughs> I will be done with NTC Tyla, and I, I am sure you. we'll have some thoughts to say about that. I greatly that. envy you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate everyone listening. Thanks as always for being with us. Until we're in your feed again, this has been the Mock Review with Ben and Drew.